can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are in verse 9 as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This would have been a shocking statement to the Jews. They were, of course, subjugated by the Roman Empire. All of their thoughts of the coming of the Messiah were about being set free from Rome. They assumed that the Messiah would lead a military revolt, and so would we have. I mean, if you are uh, subjected to the uh, government of another uh, empire and your scripture was filled with uh, stories and, and uh, promises of a coming kingdom, it, your expectation would have been a natural worldly expectation of how that would come about. Throughout his earthly ministry, the common people thought Jesus was going to establish the kingdom, the literal kingdom. Once, at least, Jesus had to avoid the crowds on purpose because they intended to crown him as their king. They were just going to take him and declare that he was their king. It was right after the feeding of the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes. John records it this way. He says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. <clears throat> These kinds of things obviously were clues, you know, to Jesus' followers that something different was going on and going to happen. But I don't fault them for not understanding this because, it, you know, as I'm always telling you guys and myself, we are really, really not only influenced uh, more easily than we think, but we have a way of thinking that sometimes is difficult to break out of. And so we, all of us in every culture, we have a tendency to study the scriptures from our point of view. It's, it's very difficult to uh, almost be neutral or without bias as you come to the scripture. One way that we do it is to try and remember the cultural uh, setting and the context of scripture who it was originally written to is very important uh, because it wasn't originally written to us. Now, it's written for us, and we can glean all these phenomenal insights, but it wasn't written to us. And so we have to be careful about making an application that we want to make based on being born in America or born in South America or born in Asia or where, wherever we happen to be in our culture. And uh, a lot of times <clears throat> when you hear Bible study, you think, well... Gee, you know, that's a stretch because it's really not about urban America. Uh, it's first about this Jewish culture. And uh, they were shocked by this. Of course, this culminated in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday when they shouted Hosanna, believing that Jesus would now free them from Rome. They believed that he had come to the point uh, in his life and ministry where it was time to be crowned king. Then you see this kingdom thinking even in the disciples and even at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was so ingrained in them that they found it hard to understand that he was ascending to heaven without establishing the promised kingdom. They said, okay, Lord, before you go, is it at this time that you're going to establish the kingdom? Now, I should let you know there's a, there's a teaching right now. It's gaining some popularity, I believe, uh, that because of Jesus' answer that no, it is not at this time and, you know, go and you'll receive power and all that that because of his answer, we shouldn't really be interested in Bible prophecy. He'll come when he's going to come. And we should be about the business of the kingdom, which is being translated into 
kind of making it like a kingdom on earth, getting more involved in social issues, feeding the hungry, those kinds of things. It's very subtle because, of course, we want to help feed the hungry and do benevolence and do those kinds of things. Uh, but there's starting to be a shift in the thinking of Christians that that, that is the emphasis that we should have. Uh, and, of course, we believe, not just because we're Calvary Chapel, obviously, but because we believe the emphasis in the Bible is on the hope that purifies us, the hope of Christ's return. Uh, any good that we can do along the way, uh, that's fantastic as long as the gospel is the primary thing that we're doing. Uh, and uh, But we're to be looking for the return of the Lord. Uh, certainly not getting the world ready for him to return. If anything, the world is going to get worse and worse before he comes back. It's going to get much worse, obviously, in the tribulation. So now you see how they would be shocked at any thought of being peacemakers. That, that's the last thing you'd, you'd think you would hear from a military uh, leader. It sounded to them like a compromise at best or a surrender at worst. Think of the mindset. Jesus is the king. He's going to take over. He's going to overthrow Rome. And when he says, well, let's be peacemakers, that can only mean one of two things. You're going to go and make peace with Rome, have some kind of a compromise, or you're just going to surrender to their domination. And, and, and so, of course, Jesus is in a whole other dimension than they were. He was talking to them about something far greater than a military reign over the earth. His was not to be a military coup over Rome. He was describing an entirely new and different kingdom. He was talking about really being at peace with God and having God ruling in our lives. The Bible portrays God as reaching out to lost mankind, all of lost mankind, in order to make peace with them. He sent his son, Jesus, to, and Paul put it this way, make peace through the blood of the cross. And so that tells us that we're not at peace with God uh, when we're born uh, as human beings, but that peace is possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In Ephesians, Paul said that Jesus is our peace. In uh, chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians, he said, For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There he's talking about uh, peace with Jew and Gentile, or peace among the human race. And so you've got these two kinds of thoughts that we'll look at this morning, peace with God and peace with one another. Like it or not, the Bible says we are God's enemy until we are saved. And once we are saved, once we experience peace with God, then we are called upon to be his peacemakers. And so this idea of being a peacemaker, as I said, is at least twofold. First, uh, you would desire that other men and women would have the same peace with God that you experience in the sense of your salvation. Now, you may, not, you may not always have the peace of God, but you have peace with God. If you're saved, God's not your enemy anymore. Uh, we can get agitated, anxious, worried, nervous, all those kinds of things, and not experience the peace of God, but at least we're at peace with God. And then second, you desire to be at peace with others as much as it is possible in a fallen world. If you've seen yourself as being poor in spirit, if you're mourning because of your sin, if you are meek, meaning you have a proper view of yourself and, and don't think more highly of yourself than you should, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness and go about showing God's mercy and desire to be pure at heart, like the other Beatitudes say, you're not going to care so much about your rights when other people wrong you. 
And essentially, this idea of being a peacemaker it has to do with being wronged and, and demanding our rights. Instead, you're going to see their need to be born again. You'll understand that their words and actions are directed by their sin nature. You'll care less about your temporary trouble and more about their eternal situation or their eternal problems. Uh, and, and this is a message that, spiritually speaking, is, is important for us to grasp because we live in a society that's fundamentally based on the Bill of Rights. We talk about our rights, and we have rights, and we enjoy them. And I, I think that's great. I don't, I don't want to give up any of them. Uh, I think we should fight for them. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But there is a higher calling, a higher kingdom. And one of the things that we, we have to do is, is set our mind there. There's no doubt that you are sometimes even often mistreated or overlooked or snubbed, or you could put in some other descriptive word in terms of how things are going at work or maybe even at home or at church or wherever. I mean, there are difficult things that people put you through. All of us have had bosses that, you know, if we weren't Christians, we would want dead probably, you know. If, but as Christians, we just want them removed in some way. Uh, and and I, I deal with, the, everybody deals with this, and, and people come to us each of, and say, man, I just can't take it anymore, or he did this, or she did that, or whatever it would be. The point is to recognize that the person or people who are against you and causing your suffering and trouble, uh, as Paul says in, in one of the pastoral epistles, are taken captive by the devil to do his will. In other words, you should expect, and we're talking about unbelievers now, we'll talk about believers in a minute. You should expect if you work around or with or for uh, unbelievers that they're going to cause you trouble. They, even if they don't want to, I mean, they don't, they don't maybe get up in the morning and, and plan this out, but the devil uses them, their flesh is involved, they, they have, uh, you know, they're in the grip of their own sin nature, they don't even know their own motives, uh, and so you should expect to have trouble at work. If you don't have trouble at work and you work with unbelievers, uh, man, that's fantastic. Don't ever quit. You know, just hire everybody else over there and stuff. And so when people come in, they say they're having trouble at work. I think, well, that's normal. That's the normal Christian life because it's there where these things are going to get worked out. Now, being a peacemaker doesn't mean you have to take whatever is dished out. You can sometimes quit your job. You might need to file a grievance at work. It might be okay to complain through proper channels. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that because we do live in a society where all of those things are open to us. And so th this is where people kind of crash on this idea of being peacemakers. They think, well, whatever comes along, I just have to take it, keep my mouth shut. Not necessarily. Uh, it does mean that that shouldn't be your first thought. It, it means that you should analyze the situation spiritually and determine whether or not a higher spiritual response would be a better response, whether or not enduring that suffering, enduring that situation would be a better opportunity for you to give a testimony of the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And the Lord can help you with that. And then if you do decide that you have to quit or file a grievance or whatever, you can do it uh, joyfully. You can do it, just say, hey, brother, or well, of course, it's not your brother, but you say, hey, uh, I just want you to know that I'm going to have to file a grievance on this. Praise the Lord. You know, or so, I mean, there's, there's a way of doing these things that, that speak of Christian character. 
Uh, to the extent that you are genuinely more concerned about souls than, say, your salary, people will see the outworking of the new divine nature within you because they're not capable of that. Believe it or not, they know that if they were in your situation, they would handle it differently. And, and they, they see that. So expect this trouble to come. And when it comes, pray about it. I mean, seriously, pray. don't pray about leaving or your boss dying or any of things like that. I mean, just pray about how God can use you in that situation. They may respond favorably as you share the Lord uh, through your actions and attitudes. They may respond unfavorably. You know, the Bible says that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the savor of life to some. They, they just take it all in and it fills them with a refreshment. Others, it's the savor of death and they don't want to have anything to do with it. But at least they will have been confronted with a supernatural effect of the Holy Spirit on our life. At some point, God wants to show other people around us that we are doing things that are not natural, that are supernatural. Uh, so that people can say, in their heart at least, maybe openly, how do you do that? I, I, don't, I can't do that. I can't react that way. I'd like to, but I can't. So how is it you do that? And you say, well... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's, it's, uh, it, of course, it's super. It's the Holy Spirit in me. It's because I know Jesus Christ. How can I not react this way when my Lord kept his mouth shut while they were beating him and plucking out his beard and such? Uh, you know, I mean, if you want to make a comparison in terms of whose rights were violated and for what purpose and those kinds of things. Now, this obviously overlaps with our second point that you desire to actually be at peace with others. Uh, if you see others and you see that they're you know, not at peace with God, um, that's the big issue. But then you also want to be at peace with them. And I want to explore this from a, within the church as believers and among believers. Uh, because there's only so much you can do in the world to actually be at peace with unbelievers. I mean, you can go pretty far, but at some point it, it could break down. But in the church, we can strive as much as possible to be at peace with all men... Uh, because among Christians, it is most possible to experience peace. If I have peace with God and you have peace with God, and we're all reading the same Bible and, and uh, worshiping the same Lord, it ought to be possible for us to be at peace or to maintain peace. The truth is, you all know this, there's always a great deal of dissent among Christians and even within a church. Some of you, maybe all of us, have had people tell us that uh, they really aren't interested in Christianity because of Christians and the way they talk about others and, and treat others and the issues that they see in churches and things like that. Uh, not to defend ourselves, obviously we still are sinners, we're still working these things through, but that's just a reality. And when that happens, it's wrong and it's carnal and it's sinful. We ought to just recognize that uh, instead of putting all these favorable terms on it and stuff. If, if there's not peace, if there's dissension and division, it's wrong and it's carnal and it's fleshly and it's sinful. Uh, whenever there is a lack of peace, there is some selfishness or some selfish motive or desire and, and either on the part of one or both or all of the people that are involved. They get locked into a, a certain situation. Now, I can only experience this for the last couple of decades from my experience as a pastor uh, and, and just in sharing from personal experience uh, how this works out in my life, oftentimes I uh, am in a position to make a determination about a ministry, uh, something that I oversee. 
as pastor of the church. My decision or my determination is never on a par with Scripture. Uh, it's not like I'm, I'm not the Pope, you know, uh, who says, that, you know, I'm not speaking uh, from the chair of Rome in the sense that people think that that is, you know, some kind of thing on a par with Scripture. And I never think I'm always right or that I cannot be wrong. I, I struggle with that a little bit. But anyway, sadly, I, I, I am. There's a line in, uh, in Jurassic Park, the first one that I like. It's uh, Dr. It, it's the crazy mathematician, you know, when the T-Rexes are set loose and stuff. And he goes, I hate it when I'm, I hate always being right or something to that effect, you know. I hate it when I'm right because he, he warned everybody that that was going to happen and stuff. He, he hates being right all the time. But that's, I know I'm not right all the time. But I also think that God has put people in certain positions to make decisions. And if you're in that position, you make a decision and you go with it. Uh, now, folks affected by the decision can react in a variety of ways. And sometimes, sadly, their reaction can be carnal and sinful. Uh, they seek the counsel of others. I always love that, which is really just a way of asking other people their opinions and to kind of get some division going on stirring up dissent. They say mean things both about me and to me, and then ultimately they may leave the church. Those three words, leave the church. That is the ultimate expression of dissent in a situation like this. People change churches. They go from church to church. They have reasons for doing so. I'm only talking about people who are dissenting because of a decision. When they finally can't get their way it's like on the playground, you just take your, you take the volleyball and you leave. It's, hey, this is my ball, so we're not, you can't play anymore. I'm going to take my volleyball and leave, or I'm just going to leave you guys to play on your own and stuff. And so leaving the church, it's the equivalent of a spouse in an argument saying, bringing up the D word and mentioning divorce. You know, once you mention divorce, it turns the discussion in a whole new direction because now you're not really working on a problem, you're working on saving the marriage and, and it, it amps things up or ramps things. Is it amp, amps things up? Either one? Well, thank you. That's why I sent you to college so you'd know these things. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, so, you, you know, so when, when you're talking of, and I've had plenty of these conversations that accelerate and they get, you know, heavier and heavier until finally people tell me that they've actually thought about leaving the church. And, and that is, that's something that you drop out there to, to say, basically, if you don't change your mind, that's what we're going you know, to do. And, and uh, so that's how serious it is to us. Now, the thing about what I'm talking about now is that these issues are almost never doctrinal. No one comes to me and says, well, I had a, a young man last Sunday when I got into that little section when I was talking about the Virgin Mary and, and how we're not to worship her. And I mentioned that uh, she, I said she was not immaculately conceived. Well, he misunderstood me to be saying that there was no immaculate conception of Jesus, that, that she wasn't really a virgin. And so he, he like plowed through everybody else talking to me to get clarification of this doctrine. And, I, and he goes, oh, and he was genuinely relieved because he thought I had become a Catholic again, you know, and stuff and, and, or whatever. And, uh, but the disagreement, I can understand a doctrinal disagreement. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, we've decided we're going to be five-point Calvinists and you're never going to teach that, and so we need to go find a church that teaches the Reformed uh, you know, doctrine of predestination. Hey, here's five churches that do that. Have a field day. You know, that, that's fantastic. I'd rather have you happy 
than dissenting and stuff. These are always personal issues. So what's the solution? Well, the, the solution is the desire to maintain peace. And I think these situations come up just so we will have an opportunity to practice peacemaking. Uh, a lot of times people say, well, your decision was somewhat arbitrary. We could have done this. We could do that. Yeah, that's fine. But I really feel led to do this. Well, but I want you to do that. And I go, well, I don't know why, but God's just... And I think sometimes it's happened to me, and I sometimes am on the other end of it too. This is the decision. So what are we going to do about it? Is it a doctrinal error? No. Is it? Is anybody mad at anybody? No. Is it? Is it sinful? No. Then let's... How, what's the problem then? So how do you decide those things? What becomes the deciding factor? Well, there's lots of things, but one is a hierarchy that God himself has established. If we move out of the church and into your home, I think you'll see this... Uh, easier. Do your wife and you ever disagree? I know, you know, Lou and his wife never disagree, but uh, when you do, you should desire to be at peace, obviously. Still, a decision has to be made. In God's economy, in God's marital hierarchy, the wife is to submit to the husband. doesn't make you right and her wrong. It maintains peace. One of the things it does is it maintains peace. Oftentimes you find out you're wrong and she was right. Uh, and if she's spiritual, she doesn't tell you about it. You know, you just figure it out on your own. But uh, that, that's the deal. I mean, it, it, to husband, wife, she might be smarter and more spiritual, but at some point God says, well, let's have the husband make the decision. All of you guys are familiar with hierarchies, you know, at work or, or in the military or wherever. There's always a system uh, in place in terms of who makes the right decision. So having talked about all of that, what about the world at large? How can we become peacemakers in our volatile, violent world? Does it mean we become pacifists like the Mennonites try to be? Or on the other end of things, do we strap on Colt 45s, the peace, called the peacemaker, you know, so... <laughs> Well, at least uh, we're not to be pacifists, and I'm thankful for that. God has raised up nations, and he has given governments to steward over the well-being of their citizens. And within government, he's given the power of the sword, as we talk about it, the power of life and death, and to wage war when there is no alternative. God's word does not contradict itself, so therefore it can't be contradictory for God to say that it's okay to have a death penalty, to have the power of the sword, to have police officers and others carry weapons, uh, to go to war and be a peacemaker at the same time. Those are not contradictory thoughts. This comes from that old idea that when Jesus came, he was a pacifist. And he was saying, oh, you know, it's, a, it's more of the philosophical Jesus that let's all lay down our weapons and just love one another. And, and that's not what Jesus was really saying at all. He was saying that you need to be at peace with God and then you need to try and make others understand that they need to be at peace with God. And as much as lies within you, you need to be at peace with others. But there is such a thing as the sin nature and other governments and, and there are times when uh, action is called for. A peacemaker must sometimes declare the death penalty or declare war to stop the aggression of those it is not possible to coexist with in peace. It's just as simple as that. It's not really difficult to understand at all. God is the ultimate peacemaker. One day, though, he will judge those whom re who rejected his offer of peace. 
And it's not out of character for God to do that. In fact, it is his character to do it. He couldn't be God if he did not judge sin and sinners ultimately. And so uh, what is true of God is also true of us as his children. Uh, there's no contradiction. And then it says here as we close, the blessedness of being a peacemaker is that they shall be called sons of God. The word called here really means owned. God will own or own up that he is your father when you are his peacemaker. It simply means that his nature is recognizable in you. We would say here, like father, like son. Blessed are the peacemakers, like father, like son, is something that we would maybe say to paraphrase it. God is called the God of peace in Romans 15. The Bible opens with peace in the garden. It ends with peace in eternity. Although peace was interrupted by sin, Jesus offers us peace now. He can reign in peace in our hearts, and we are his peacemakers while we await his return as Prince of Peace. We're the messengers, the ambassadors who spread the peace of God. And so the teaching this morning, one of the applications of it is to start seeing our conflicts with others as opportunities to be peacemakers. If they're not Christians, so that they can be at peace with God and be saved. If they are Christians, so that we can be at peace with one another and enjoy our relationship with the Lord and not be distracted by divisions and dissent. One thing I didn't talk about back there in that section, there is nothing more distracting than division and dissent within a church. It occupies all of your time and thought and energy uh, that could be going into ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing others blessed. Amen.